This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. It's kind of like that when you get there. <laughs> and if you can stay out of chemistry, more power to you. I really didn't like chemistry much. But anyhow, <laughs> but anyhow it, there are distinct steps that have to happen. That we, we, we tried to lay that out. And then yesterday uh, in our third meeting, we started on the Adventist history part of things. And... I'm pulling a total blank. What did we start? What did we do yesterday? <laughs> uh, uh, Kellogg. Oh yeah, th- yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay. Um, Doctor Kellogg was converted in 1888 at Minneapolis under the preaching of Jones and Wagner. And when he was converted, it, it's it's not that he stopped going to the bar because he hadn't been going to the bar. Uh, he he just started being nice to people. <laughs> And he started within one year's time, well, a little bit more than a year, but, you know, from the summer of 1890 to uh, 1892, through 1892, he started the um, orphanage in Battle Creek. We had over 500 Adventist orphans who were not being cared for at that time in, in the United States alone. He started an orphanage in Battle Creek. He started the visiting nurses program that went down to Chicago. Uh, both of those were funded by non-Adventists. It's kind of a sad thing. Uh, we have 500 orphan, orphans kicking around the country, and we hadn't done a thing for them. And they tried for a year to raise funds, and they got just enough to buy some property, but not enough to build an orphanage. And along came a non-Adventist lady, gave $30,000, uh, and established a big, beautiful orphanage. Very similar in its concept to, uh, say, International Children's Care, for instance. Remember, those of you who were here, you saw that big, um, um, big building, okay? It wasn't one massive building. It was divided up inside into like, what was it, nine or ten different living areas. And, and it functioned as uh, individual families. So they didn't put all the ten-year-olds together and all the seven-year-olds together. You know, having been a teacher for 20 years, one of the stupidest things you can do is put a whole bunch of kids the same age together and then not have immediate on the spot within 24 inches adult supervision. Okay? That's just dumb. You know? Uh, families aren't made that way unless you go to some fertility clinic and have 12 at once or something. Um, <laughs> you know, a very bad idea, I would think. <laughs> you know, so you've always got you know, some older kids to help take care of the younger kids. And so they set up the orphanage that way. So they had like about nine or ten different families with about 11, 12 kids in each family. And they went from the upper teens down to the infants, you know. And, and you, you delegate that way. And kids get used to having somebody older than them boss them around. That's an important thing to learn in life. Um, you know? Uh, it really is. Because, yeah, well, it is. Anyhow. Uh, okay. <laughs> Anyhow, so the, the, the point of yesterday, though, uh, was that in 1892, Ellen White said that the loud cry had begun. And within uh, about two and a half months later, Dr. Kellogg stood up at the General Conference and said, basically, you know, we don't really have much right to expect the loud cry because the loud cry is the, the end of Isaiah 58. All those promises. You know, then you're right on the high places of the earth. I feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. The righteousness and the glory of the Lord will go before you. The righteousness of God will be your rearward. 
um, you will call and I will answer, all these, all these great promises. And um, he says, we haven't done that, so we really can't expect to have the loud cry. And of course, that created confusion in people's minds, because Ellen White had said we had the loud cry already. So was Kellogg contradicting Ellen White? What was going on? They had to sort that all out. Um, in my opinion, and you are entirely free to have an opinion of your own which differs from mine because there have been several instances in my life where I've been wrong. So <laughs> feel free to you know, <laughs> form your own opinion. Uh, but in my opinion, Kellogg was essentially right. He, he was pointing to a very important element of the loud cry. And we chose to largely ignore that collectively you know, um, uh, organizationally, institutionally, whatever you want to say. Um, we we chose, chose to largely ignore that. We're going to continue that basic, you know, from that basic place today. And I'm going to say that everybody's here that needs to be here, so let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we do ask your presence to be with us. Lord, these are interesting stories, and I just get caught up in the story, and I, I love the stories, but I pray you'd help us to... Uh, be able to remain calm enough to think clearly and to, to learn the lessons as well. And give us, give us grace and wisdom to know how to make application in, in every one of our lives because we're all in different places. We all have different skills. We all have different opportunities. And we're not cookies come out of a cookie cutter. So just give us wisdom, we ask now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Title today is Diverging Paths, and the idea is, can two walk together? Well, you maybe know the rest of the Bible verse, right? You know, it says, unless they be agreed. How many people do you know that you agree with? <laughs> I'm, I'm just, just asking. <laughs> I'm not sure about you, but it, it, <laughs> 20 years of school administration type of thing, I found out that it's not always that easy to get people to walk together. <laughs> they, they have a tendency to... Kind of diverge. It just just happens. Anyhow. Um, So, here we go. Let's see. What do we have? We're talking, first of all, with the sad fact that opposition to Dr. Kellogg and his health reform work was apparently fairly widespread, especially among the ministers of the church. How many of these ministers? Which ones opposed him? Yeah, Ellen White's pretty careful about that. She doesn't give us a lot of names and information on that. There are a few that I could probably um, you know, surmise, but I'm not going to bother because it won't help you any. Um, but there were people that just flat didn't like what Kellogg had to preach. One place we can see this pretty easily is uh, 1888 itself, as early as 1888. Those of you who may be, you know, kind of into the history of this a little bit, you'll remember that when the Minneapolis conference rolled around, George Butler was sick, and he, was, he stayed home in Battle Creek. He didn't make it to Minneapolis. He wrote Ellen White a 31-page letter, and the, the take-home thought of that letter was, I am sick because you didn't support me in this whole conflict. She described it to her daughter-in-law. She said uh, the letter was a most curious production of accusations and charges against me. Well, people that are interested in 1888 have studied that letter. You know, it's, it's kind of like one of the key documents in the whole conflict issue type of thing. So they've looked this thing over pretty carefully, trying to figure out what's, what's going on with that. 
It came as a surprise to me when I went back and looked at it. In that letter, George Butler, on the eve of the whole conflict of 1888, 31 pages, he mentions A.T. Jones exactly once. He mentions E.J. Wagner three times. He mentioned John Harvey Kellogg 15 times. And Ellen wrote back to him and said, It will be seen sometime that our brethren and sisters have not been inspired by the Spirit of Christ in their manner of dealing with Dr. Kellogg. This is direct response to this letter from, from Butler. Your attitude toward him will not bear the approval of God, even if he was the man which you think him to be. Butler had a, you know, was kind of thinking that, that Kellogg was... Well, Butler saw Kellogg at that point, anyhow, as being designing and scheming, and um, yeah, he might have been. You know, he was human. You've got to remember, Kellogg was, a, Kellogg was in a unique position. He was the most highly formally educated Adventist in the world. How much of a barrier did that prove you know, to his less formally educated brethren? You know, it's hard to say. But anyhow, going on, you cannot be any help to him while you maintain this position, but you can pursue a course that will so weaken his confidence in his brethren that they cannot help him when and where he needs to be helped. You know, we can do that pretty easily with people. Well, when you stop and you start looking back, I don't know, maybe especially as a teacher, principal, type of thing. You look back and you, you look at the kids you say, wow, what, what, what impression did I make on that kid, you know? And it's not always what you expect. You know, one of my best friends from former students is a kid I kicked out of school. <laughs> I kicked him out. I was like, you got to a point where we couldn't deal with him. So it's like, you're out of here, man. Bye. And, uh, you know, but we've stayed friends. Doesn't always happen. Anyhow, going on, same Letter from Ellen White. Dr. Kellogg is a finite man and has his errors as well as other men, but God has done a work through him and has been giving him strength. He does not now feel exasperated as he once did when he is misjudged. There is no reason why his brethren should stand away from him and criticize and denounce and condemn him when they have no real knowledge of his work and what they are talking about. This is not the spirit of Christ and will have no saving influence upon Dr. Kellogg. If the doctor fails in doing his duty and being an overcomer at last, those brethren who have failed in their want of wisdom and discernment to help the man when and where he needed help will be in a large measure responsible. What does that statement sound a lot like? Those of you who um, studied a little history. Ever hear another statement like that? Jones and Wagner. She said almost the same thing. Yeah, yeah. If they eventually fall away, it will be largely the responsibility of those who gave them so much grief they got fed up with it. Lost my place. <laughs> Where am I? <laughs> yeah, I'm just not seeing. Oh, there we go. For there have been but few who have faithfully warned him in kindness and love for his soul, but hurt him with their thrusts behind his back. Has not Dr. Kellogg shown the greatest respect to our ministers? Has he ever given the least evidence that he was ashamed of his brethren? I hope, my brother, that you will no longer cherish such thoughts. They are unworthy of a Christian. 
That's uh, kind of pointed stuff to write to the general conference president. So what was the source of all this? Well, probably many things. Kellogg had more formal education than anyone else in the denomination. Some probably felt he was showing off. Well, happens. Another issue was the inherent difficulty of selling people on the idea of self-control. Yeah, it's a hard sell. <laughs> you know, you start trying to preach health reform. You know, tell people you shouldn't eat between meals. Stop it. <laughs> you, know? you know, that was that was. You know, I remember. You know, oh, I mean, I can't tell too many stories, but I remember what I've. I've my, my, my childhood was woefully negligent, I suppose. I, I really didn't understand anything about any lack of desirability of eating between meals. And I went away to academy, and some kind teacher somehow or the other, you know, some class, you know, told me I shouldn't be eating between meals. Maybe I was eating in the classroom, too. I don't remember. But anyhow. And, and I remember going home on a, on a, a, like a, you know, a break you know, between, from academy going home or weekend or whatever. And uh, my parents both worked. That's what happens to uh, people who put kids in academy. <laughs> Anyhow, so, so I'm, I'm here at home by myself type of thing. And I remember walking around the house, you know, and just had nothing to do. We live out in the country, so there's nothing to do. And I walk around, and it's like 20 times in one morning I found myself in the kitchen looking up in the cupboard, you know. And I was like, no, you're not supposed to eat between meals. You know, that was hard. That was really hard. I, I, that, that was probably the first conscious occasion when I ever said, I'm going to try and control myself. I don't know. <laughs> it was hard. <laughs> and it's not an easy sell. And this is what Kellogg was trying to tell people is, you know, change your diet, you know, choose something better, you know, live properly, you know, do these different things, you know, and it was, was a challenge. Um, the latter, the health reform issue was a particular irritant to Kellogg when people didn't accept it. He knew he knew that what he was preaching was from God. He knew that. And they didn't accept it. And ministers didn't accept it. So what do I do with this minister now? Yeah. He has rejected that which is from God. How do I treat him now? How do I view him now? You know, Ellen White once said, she, she, she wrote, um, I have for years fellowshiped with men whom I've known to be guilty. You know? we, we, we need to slow down just a little bit in writing people off. Doesn't mean that we need to go, oh, I don't know, maybe they're not doing the wrong thing. That's stupid. You know? There's a great statement in notebook leaflets. I'm way off track here, but it's, it's a good statement. <laughs> she's writing to the young people and she says if you look at the church members and you see that they are f at fault she said be thankful that God has given you the discernment to see that and then avoid the same mistake you know has it ever irritated and it always used to drive me just stark raving mad I had all these, these well-meaning adults saying when you see a fault in someone else it means you're guilty of the same thing so stop seeing it it's like, hello, what? <laughs> that doesn't pass logic 101, but anyhow. So I was, I was so relieved when I ran into that statement in the notebook leaf. Said, of course there are faults in people. We're, we're, we're faulty people. We don't have to be stupid. We don't have to be judging. You know, thou shalt not judge, right? Okay. 
That's the executive phase. It's not my, it's not my job to take a sword and start whacking people. Okay? 2 Corinthians 2.15, Paul says, The righteous man judges all things. So hang on to that verse, because you'll need it. Okay. Anyhow, <laughs> it's a different kind of judging. That's not the executive judgment. That's the rational evaluation judgment. So don't shut your brain off. Just put your sword away. Okay? Anyhow, moving on. Talking about the ministers... The Lord has given Dr. Kellogg his, well, we'll get to ministers, uh, Dr. Kellogg his work. It is a fact that our ministers are very slow to become health reformers, notwithstanding all the light which the Lord has given upon this subject. This has caused Dr. Kellogg to lose confidence in them, hopefully, ideally, only in that area. Does that make sense? You've got to learn to trust people that still make mistakes. Or you're not going to trust anybody. Their tardy work in health reform has created in him a spirit of criticism and he has borne down on them in an unsparing manner, which the Lord does not sanction. He has belittled the gospel ministry and in his regard and ideas has placed the medical mission work above the ministry. I have seen that in the censuring of ministers, remarks have been made which have not been to the honor and glory of God. Okay. Um, this particular statement was actually written in 1898. I just want to help you try and keep the chronology of things on here. Uh, and that's, that was all true when she wrote that in 1898. If I were going to try and put a date on it and say, when did Kellogg get fed up and turn against the ministry, it's hard to be exact, but I would probably say 1896. Okay? And it, it hardened and it grew. His opposition, his, his antagonism to the ministry, I would say kind of turned the corner in 1896 and got worse thereafter. Okay? Um, Kellogg seems to have just kind of given up on the ministry and decided he was going to go ahead and do the work of the Lord by himself because these guys weren't helping. And it was too often too true. They didn't help many times. Kellogg hosted, at his own expense, the general conference session on 11 different occasions. Once, even after he was disfellowshipped. Go ahead and figure that out. Uh, <laughs> He was running the Battle Creek Sanitarium. It was a vegetarian place. But way off in one corner of the, of the dining hall, there was a little window, and if you absolutely had to have a dead animal to eat, you could go over there and get one. Okay? And so it used to bug him no end because the ministers would come through. Out of the, oh, they just got out of the divine service. And so they all come marching over to the, the cafeteria and they grab their little trays and in mass, they'd all go marching over to pick up a piece of chicken or something, you know. Uh, just drove the guy stark raven mad. It's hard to blame him entirely. I mean, you know, we, we need to be patient, John, but, you know, it's hard to blame him. <laughs> okay, let's go on. Enough of all that. Is there a comment? No? Okay. Okay. Um, but when Kellogg turned against the ministry, you know, inevitably it starts pumping up his own pride, which is not a helpful thing, you may recall. Uh, and he began to be resistant to even Ellen White. He had been very strong supporter of Ellen White. But, you know, when she started writing and telling him, Brother John, you need to work with your ministerial brethren, so, you know, give up on that. You know, I don't know what she's writing about. Okay? So you understand how this goes? Is it? These are people. Flesh and blood. Scary. They're a lot like you and me. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's, the, that's the dangerous part here. Another sore point with some of the ministry was Dr. Kellogg's emphasis on helping the poor. 
That branch of work seems to have held little interest to them. There were a great number of our ministers who, frankly, they kind of enjoyed preaching. And if they could have a big crowd, that was better than a small crowd. And Dr. Kellogg was advocating this work down in the Chicago visiting nurses program in the Chicago City Mission eventually that was helping poor people. And that's messy work. And the ministers, frankly, didn't like it. Kellogg ended up taking that to extremes, and that was unfortunate, but you know. Let's go on. My brethren in America, in the place of questioning and criticizing Dr. Kellogg because he is doing the class of work he is, and she's talking about the helping the poor, when you do your God-given service, you will be heart and soul engaged in doing the same kind of work, which would be of far more account in the sight of God than for so many to flock into Battle Creek where they become religious dwarfs because they do not do the work God has appointed them. Yeah, well, she could get pointed when she needed to. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you get the idea here. This ongoing guerrilla warfare <laughs> made it hard for Ellen White. She was trying to hang on to both sides of this. You know? She knew the ministers were imperfect, but she knew Kellogg was imperfect. Is that a surprise? They were all human, right? Both sides in the battle would cherry-pick anything they could find from her writings that would support their position. So she often ended up writing differently to different people. That's really important. When you read a letter from Ellen White to the ministers, oh, you'd think Kellogg was, was, was virtually a saint. Man, that guy was great. When you read a, a letter from Ellen White to Kellogg, you'd say, man, the guy doesn't, got a, doesn't have a chance. You know? <laughs> she'd, she'd ream him out and say, you need to work with these brothers. They are doing God's work. And you'd think, wow, the ministers must be really good. Well, not so much. You know, they were human. Okay. To each participant in the fighting, she would generally write warnings and reproofs and speak as favorably as possible of the other people. Eventually, though, neither side was listening to her very much. One final example of this comes from 1903. This is a full year Actually, about 16 months after Dr. Kellogg had finished writing The Living Temple, the book with the pantheism in it, she's talking about a published pantheist. <laughs> God does not endorse the efforts put forth by different ones to make the work of Dr. Kellogg as hard as possible in order to build themselves up. God gave the light on health reform, and those who rejected it rejected God. One and another who knew better said that it all came from Dr. Kellogg, and they made war upon him. This had a bad influence on the doctor. He put on the coat of irritation and retaliation. God did not want him to stand in the position of warfare, and he does not want you to stand there. Some have turned away from the Battle Creek Sanitarium because of something that the doctor said, has, had said or done that did not please them. This God did not approve. Look at that reference. This is in a public meeting at the general conference session. She's saying this. Wow. You know, it must have been challenging to live with a prophet running around. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, George Butler, bless his heart. Incidentally, I met his great-great-grandson here two days ago. Um, George Butler... I wrote a letter to Dr. Kellogg in later years, and he said, Dr. Kellogg, 
Have you ever been caught in a hailstorm? When those chunks of ice come down and smack into you? He says, it hurts. He says, that's always what it's like when the testimonies come to you. Because you never expect them. Because you think you're doing the right thing. And all of a sudden, you open this letter, and it's bam, 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 bam. And the question is, are you going to accept reproof or not? Well, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. I don't know how we would do today if we had a living prophet writing this stuff to you and me. You know, I'm sure I'd, you know, if, if the prophet had time, I'm sure there were, there'd be things that could be written that would be to my benefit. <laughs> I don't know if I'd like to read them. Well, okay. But having said all that, it would not be right to leave the impression that Dr. Kellogg was some sort of an angelic victim in all these attacks. A victim, yes, but not always angelic. Not always correct in his own plans and designs. More than anything else, Kellogg's problem was pride and the desire to simply outdo all the ministers. He was kind of fed up with them. So I'm, I, can, I can do more than this whole batch of guys. He, he took at one point to calling them a collection of extremely mediocre men. <laughs> I, I don't know, I shouldn't laugh at that, but it is kind of funny. Anyhow, <clears throat> Kellogg's programs, even after the fires of 1902, just had to be bigger and better and attract more attention. He, he was a showman which can be sanctified. We'll see an example of that in a little bit. Showmanship is a skill, like any other skill, and it can be sanctified. Jesus could be pretty dramatic too. You ever read about the triumphal entry? Got a few people's attention. Ever hear about not once, but twice, chasing people out of the temple? He can be pretty dramatic. There's a, place for, there's a place for drama. There's a place for showmanship, but it has to be sanctified. Going on. Kellogg's programs had this unfortunate side effect of costing a lot of money. He was a really good fundraiser, something that I am not. But he was a really good fundraiser, and he ended up sucking up a lot of money. Ellen White... The whole Australian work, the whole time she was over there, was, was, was suffering for money, and she kept writing letter after letter to Kellogg and saying, listen, man, quit building buildings over there. You don't need more buildings for your sanitarium. Send some of that money over here. We're trying to build a sanitarium. We don't have a dime. And by that time, Kellogg had this nifty little thing that he'd set up where he'd incorporated the whole thing under some law that forbid sending money outside the state of Michigan. So he, I'm sorry, Sister White, but I really can't do that. <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't buy that. <laughs> she said, I think you can find a way. <laughs> but anyhow, going on. <clears throat> this letter was written on New Year's Day, 1900, to Elder Olson, the General Conference President. She says, I see that your difficulties are becoming more settled and pronounced because Dr. Kellogg refuses counsel and chooses to do the very things that God has told him not to do. But the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. If Dr. Kellogg refuses to change his methods of labor, then the sure result will come. I think this just goes right on. She says, seek to save Dr. Kellogg from himself. 
He is not heeding the counsel he should heed. He is not satisfied because the Lord has signified that the missionary work does not consist alone in the slum work in Chicago. That work, thought to be the great and important thing to do, is a very defective and expensive work. It has absorbed the means and has deprived our poverty-stricken foreign mission fields of the help God designed them to have. Well, there's a whole lot more to this story, but we will have to skip it. In the end, everything that Ellen White could do, all the letters she could write, all the council prayers, diplomacy, entreaties, and everything else, proved ineffective in stopping this growing rift between Kellogg and the ministry. The pantheism pantheism issue came up in 1902, and it's funny, if you read our history books today, it's like you'd almost get the impression that everything was fine with Kellogg until all of a sudden he became a pantheist, and then out out of respect for doctrinal purity, we had to kick the guy out of the church. And that's just really not the way it was viewed at the time. Pantheism was never the big issue in anyone's mind back there. Now, don't get me wrong, pantheism is not a small issue. And if you may recall, Ellen White's comments about the alpha and the omega of apostasy, okay, but I'm going to, this is my guess at this point. You can, you know, again, take it or leave it. Um, I'm inclined to think that her, the, the severity of her comments on the, on the pantheism issue are more prophetic than they were applicable at the time. Because, frankly, the people at the time, they kind of scratched their heads and said, uh, really? Wow. Is it that big of a deal? Pantheism only became an issue of great conflict uh, on a couple of occasions. The famous occasion with the iceberg vision, if you remember that, the Fall Council of 1903. And then the Berrien Springs meeting in the spring of 1904, when the people who were there, when in their memoirs, they write about it, and they say simply, pantheism at that point was a club that both sides of, of the rift, the, you know, the, the ministerial side and the, and the sanitarium side, could use to bash each other. Okay? So is pantheism a big issue? Yes, it's a big issue, but I think it's a much bigger issue today. The relationships today, the omega of apostasy, than it was actually in the alpha. The alpha is like the acorn. The omega is the oak tree. Okay? Um, the issue at the time was, was simpler. M- issues of personal respect and control. The last thing Kellogg was ever going to settle for was to have a bunch of, in his impression of things, stupid ministers trying to run his sanitarium. And he never settled for that. Okay. That came to a head in 1901 with the reorganization of the General Conference. Um, and then 1903, even more so, Kellogg stood up in 1903 and he said, you may pass this motion, but I'll tell you, I will never be bound by it. And he never was. And he, he would not surrender control of the sanitarium. And that was, that was the issue. That was the perceived issue, at least. Okay. Well, in 1907... Dr. Kellogg was dropped from membership of this Battle Creek Church. There wasn't much they could do about it. He hadn't, hadn't entered the church for several years at that point. <laughs> Didn't bother to go to the meeting when they had the business session to drop his from fellowship. He sent a secretary, took notes. Um, so God's physician, the one Ellen White called God's physician, was lost to the cause. I think we lost a great deal. We threw out some baby, some, some dirty bathwater that needed to go, 
but I think there was several babies in there that we could have hung on to, <laughs> if you're familiar with that analogy. Meanwhile, down in Australia, Ellen White was doing something different. You may have heard the statement we, we talk about Avondale was to be the model school. Okay, you remember that statement? She, was, she said, we're going to start a new school. We're not going to pattern after Battle Creek College or, or, or any other school. She said, we're not going to pattern after any school we've got in the United States. We're going to do it right this time down at Avondale. It was to be the model school. You know what? She was trying to create a model ministry as well. Okay? Comment here. It is God's purpose that there shall be a true pattern in Australia, a sample of how other fields shall be worked. The work should be symmetrical and a living witness for the truth. Notice that symmetrical thing. That's really important. Understand what symmetry is? The balanced proportion of parts, okay? So what's she talking about when she says the work needs to be symmetrical? What she's saying is, specifically, well, let's give you another statement. This is what Willie said about it, Willie White. It has been presented to Mother that Australasia is a field in which we will do a model work, a work that will show to our friends and brethren in other lands how the evangelistic work and the medical work should be carried forward in perfect agreement, in perfect harmony, blended together. That's the symmetry we were after. Okay? And again, to make my connection back, there has to be a demonstration made. And the demonstration is going to be using Christ's methods alone because they alone will give true success in reaching the people. Okay? So this is what she was doing. She spent nine years or, or ten years down in Australia, nine years, uh, in Australia, trying to establish a model of the church that was symmetrical. Instead of having, as Kellogg wanted, this huge thing that was, it was like a, it was like, like a cancer almost in a sense in that it didn't stop growing. Okay? The medical work kept growing and it wasn't contributing to the body. That was wrong. And then you had the rest of the body, quite a number of which were sitting around, it's like chanting, cut off the right arm, cut off the right arm. <laughs> it's like, that's, a, that's not a really great idea either, you know? Okay? So... Ellen White says, we're going we're to do it symmetrically, okay? Uh, let's see. <clears throat> hmm. Oh, yes, okay. How exactly are you going to get all these nice doctors and ministers to work together? That can be challenging, okay? But it can be done, and Ellen White was determined to make it happen. In a way that they might not have you know, appreciated, really, the Lord had prepared the, 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 the ground Given them the, the perfect setup to do this. In early 1893, Ellen White had been there, well, she spent, I don't remember, almost a year, I think, in New Zealand before she really spent much time in Australia. So she'd been there not too long. And in early 1893, all of a sudden, the banks crashed. Is there anyone here that will be surprised if the banks crash sometime in the next six months in this country? Just checking. Anyone? <laughs> is there anyone <laughs> I know I'm a pessimist but I, I, I just oh man you know, if you got your life savings in a bank I'm not giving out financial advice I'm just shooting my mouth off 
get the money out and buy something, buy anything, you know, invest it in God's work preferably. And I, I just, I can't see how this mess is going to continue. But I'm not an economist, so don't, don't take that too seriously. But, you know, in 1893, the banks in Australia went belly up, okay? Um, everybody was broke. Everything was miserable. People were starving to death, okay? The failure of banks and the financial pressure make hard times everywhere in this country. It is difficult for students to obtain money to defray their expenses at school or for our brethren to build even the most humble places of worship. We hear of people starving to death in the cities. And nearly every day, persons come to our door begging for something to eat. They are never turned away. You know, hard times have silver linings. And if you'll take your thinking back, those of you who are here, all the way to the opening lines of session number one. Remember when the devil said, when Lucifer said, I can take better care of myself than God can. That really only becomes a pressing issue when resources are slim. I don't have as much as I'd really like to have. Shall I continue following the golden rule and giving some of my food to this guy who just came to my door? Can I trust God to take care of me? Or do I need to start taking care of myself? So here they were. This is a fascinating statement. I love this. I about choked when I read this. She's writing to Willie. And she says, yesterday it all opened before me that in this very line of hospitality, I have been repeatedly shown that we can unite the people with us, that's win their friendship and their respect, and can have twofold influence over them. This was unfolded before me in the first experience in this work many years back, and we have ever linked our interest with humanity. What she's saying is unselfish service wins friends. We can be hospitable when people are hungry. Feed the hungry. Bring the poor that are cast out to the house. Clothe the naked. We're talking Isaiah 58. <laughs> it's, like, it's like this is an aha moment. Yesterday, it all opened before me. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's probably not easy being a prophet either, you know? It's like, man, I never thought of that. <laughs> it's like, wow, what a great idea. Can you depend on God when you're poor? You know, that's when, it, that's when push comes to shove. Okay, moving on. <clears throat> the one problem, of course, was that the Adventists were not any better off financially than everyone else. That meant that their opportunity to serve... Other people hinged on three things. First, their own willingness to sacrifice in order to be generous, funding from fellow Adventists in other countries, and miraculous support direct from God. All three were needed. Uh, it's the funding from the fellow Adventists that really fell short. <laughs> there wasn't money coming from the states because they were busy building buildings and doing things that they felt were really important. Well, we're kind of cramped here in this department. We ought to uh, put a new building over there. Ellen White really, really, some, some of her letters, she just sounds livid. She said, how dare you do that when we are st 
starving to death over here for funds to carry on God's work. We have a beautiful opportunity over here, and you are keeping it there? It's just like, it's just like letter after letter after letter. She's just, bam, what is going on? Okay, going on. We cannot, with our wills, sway back the wave of poverty which is sweeping over this country, but just as far as the Lord shall provide us with means, we shall break every yoke and let the oppressed go free. Where do those lines come from? This was 1894, at a time when Dr. Kellogg's Christian Help Bands were making news back in the United States. Okay, for those of you who weren't here, Christian Help Band, very simple thing. A little group of about usually nine individuals get together, uh, kind of divvy it out. One was the leader. There would usually be two uh, mother's helpers, three burden bearers, uh, maybe a nurse, uh, and uh, I forget what the other positions were. And they would just, in an organized way, say, okay, we're going to take on these three blocks right here. We're going to go out and find out if anybody's hungry. How are you doing? Is everybody okay? Do you have enough food to eat? Anybody sick here? Oh, your grandfather has a sore in his leg that hasn't healed up for six months. Let me see if I can get a nurse to come out and dress that for him. You don't have any firewood. I've got a couple of burden bearers. They'd love to split some firewood for you. Very, very simple stuff. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah, there's a certain uh, skill level in dressing wounds. They even, you know, they, this was all happening right around Battle Creek. Not all, but primarily happening around Battle Creek. And so there were times when they actually even arranged for charity surgeries. But that's the high end. The vast majority was f- food, clothes, helping out around the house, helping when people were sick, helping people find a job. Fairly practical stuff, actually. Kellogg had started all that in 1892. By 1894, it was going ra- fairly strongly. That's the one element of all of Kellogg's programs. I've never found any, any uh, reproof from Ellen White. She loved the Christian help work, and they loved it in Australia. So, obviously, it seems to be working back in the States. We need this here. On Sabbath afternoon, May 12, 1894, a special meeting of the North Fitzroy Church was held to consider the Christian help work. Brother Daniels, A.G. Daniels, conducted the meeting and cited his hearers to the example of Christ, who went about doing good, ministering to the suffering body as well as to the sin-sick soul. Brother Simmons, A.W. Simmons, Arthur Simmons, we're going to be following this guy. He's quite an interesting character. Brother Simmons, who has had considerable experience in this work in America, told how the work is done there. Sister Engels gave some examples of practical Christian work done in, er, in pra, Prahran. I don't know how to pronounce that. Anyhow. A.W. Simmons was an Australian. He'd gone to Battle Creek, taken the nursing course, um, I don't know exactly. I need to try and figure this out. He, uh, at some point or the other, he married a girl by the name of Emma. She was also a nurse. I don't know if she was Australian. I don't know if she went over with him. I don't know if they were married when they went or if they got married over here. I don't quite have that figured out. But they both ended up being nurses. They worked. Um, A.W. Simmons was actually the leader of Christian Help Band Number 1. <laughs> okay? When they first formally organized in, in early November of 1892, he was chosen as the leader of Christian Help Band Number 1. And uh, he oversaw that work, and within six months, he had 16 Christian help bands going in Battle Creek. Uh, Gained a lot of experience there. He spent some time working down at the Chicago City Mission, and then eventually ends up back in Australia. So he's the point guy for Christian help work now in Australia, okay? So Simmons had a lot of people watching him, okay? Okay. 
<clears throat> the objects of the Christian help bands are, one, to minister to the sick, two, to provide for the needy, three, to comfort the distressed, four, to uplift the fallen, five, to lead, the Christ, to, lead to Christ the unconverted. This work has been entered upon heartily in North Fitzroy. Between 50 and 60 persons have enrolled their names as volunteers. Five bands of 10 persons each, including the leader, have been organized and have, been, have commenced work. Already a large number of needy cases have been found, and there are calls for food, clothing, and bedding. Some of these wants have been met, and others shall be promptly. Now, here's the big question with this kind of work. How do you avoid spending every dime you've got in this particular kind of work? Because there's always going to be... Needs. That's the big challenge. It's not really a big challenge. It's this acute and confusing thing. If you sit down and try to draw it out, what it takes is common sense. <laughs> okay? This is not one of those things that you drop a list of 17 checkpoints. You know? Okay, you would like some food. You know? No, you don't do it that way. You use a little common sense. Does it look like the guy is, is taking advantage of your system and not trying to get a job? Well, maybe you don't give him something that day. Because <laughs> you know? there is a kind of charity which is counterproductive. Okay? And Ellen White makes that clear. This is part of Kellogg's problem, in the, in, especially in the Chicago City Mission. They were feeding 400 people a day. Day in, day out. That took some cash. And they were getting very little out of it because, um, you know, eventually it attracted a clientele that were happy for free food. And that's it. So they didn't do that so much down in Australia. They had, they had homeless shelters. The Adventists ran homeless shelters in Australia. But they called them a working man's home or the helping hand mission. Actually, that was their, their, their main title. They had, at one point, they had four different places in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, and whatever it is out west. Adelaide. Adelaide. That sounds right. I think you're right. Good job. Um, my Australian geography is not all that great. <laughs> Sorry. But anyhow, um, but they had four different places called the Helping Hand Mission, and they, would, they, they didn't so much just, they, they weren't interested in wasting all their resources. They couldn't do that. They didn't have any to begin with. You know? They were working on a very, very fine margin because the banks had crashed and there was nothing much available. So what they did, in, at least in one place, they had the helping hand woodlot. Okay? So here's some guy, and yes, he's probably coming down off of a three-day binge, and he's been drunk. But he needs a place to spend the night. Will you split a quart of wood tomorrow? Yes, I will. Okay. You can spend the night. Sometimes they skipped out without skipping the wood. But when they came back the next night, I don't think you skipped split your wood, did you? Uh, no? Okay. No room tonight. Sorry. <laughs> There's a place for common sense and fairness in this work. Okay? Jesus was a pretty common sense guy. And sometimes we get the impression that he was not. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. Let's go on. A committee was appointed to solicit contributions. This is another key element that the Spirit of Prophecy makes clear. When we're helping the world, 
we have the right to ask the world for help. Does that make sense? You with me on that? Okay. We don't have to drain the Adventist coffers entirely to do this particular kind of work. So a committee was appointed to solicit contributions, and encouraging offers of help have been received, including a donation of two guineas, I don't know how much it is, from a member of the Fitzroy City Council. So non-Adventists were saying, that's cool, we can help with that. We look for good results, okay? Um, a couple slides back, we mentioned Brother Simmons, okay? Told you about him. Um, he, um, he's a fascinating guy. Uh, he was, as I said, he's the point guy. He was the point man for this whole thing. And the people were looking for good results, so they were watching Simmons pretty closely, okay? Here's another article about him. Some five months ago, the Christian help work was started under the leadership of Brother Semmons. Seven bands in this particular location were organized. The locality around the Echo office, this was the Echo Publishing Company, that was the Adventist Publishing House in Australia. Um, the locality around the Echo office for some distance was divided into districts with one band to each. Each district had two lady visitors whose duty it was to make investigation and determine what help should be given to the destitute cases reported. Through this means, many of the poor and needy have had their wants relieved and the gospel preached to them. During the past six months, there has been a greater interest manifested in this church in the missionary meetings than for years past, and the attendance has been increasing, has been increased fourfold. Okay. Good. Simmons was doing all right, okay? This is the kind of stories we like, you know? Arthur and his wife show up. Everybody loves them. They're doing a good job. Everybody's happy. We should be just, you know, everything should be just great. You know, that hardly ever happens. You know that, right? <laughs> we are talking about people. Let's just be honest. Everybody brings their baggage, okay? Just get used to it. Um, but there was good. Okay, we, before we get to the trouble, there was good here. So here's, here's, uh, here's Willie's description of it. He says, I am more and more satisfied that the plans on which Elder Corliss is endeavoring to work are in harmony with apostolic methods. We have been very much encouraged by the growth in wisdom and in efficiency of the young men who are working with him, and we are much pleased with the results of their labors. There is now such a demand for Bible readings upon the part of the people to whom we have been distributing the printed sermons that we shall arrange to release Brother Simmons and Pallant from the work of distribution, that they may spend their entire energies in holding Bible readings. Okay, so what he's saying is this combined medical, ministerial, evangelistic approach has been working so well that these guys who've been doing, uh, you know, these a combination of things, are going to be released from that so they can just cover the Bible studies. Actually, Bible readings, and it was so much more efficient. I don't know why we can't do this. I, I don't have the skill. Maybe it's just impossible. But a Bible reading in those days, they usually had like 10 or 12 people. It, it wasn't you go in and sit down with, with you know, one little old lady in a rocking chair and have a Bible study. They'd, you know, all the friends and neighbors would come in, and you'd sit down with 10 people. It was just, just like, you know, more for your buck out of the deal. Anyhow, okay, so everything was sounding good, but yeah, there's always something going on. Um, as it turns out, um, the brethren in Australia had, you know, they weren't in paradise yet either, okay? So here's another letter from Willie. This was written to, 
I forget who this is written to. Yeah, this is a more confidential letter, shall we say, from Willie White. He says, for some months they, A.W. Simmons and his wife Emma, have been laboring in Sydney and its suburbs. He combines the work of a call porter evangelist and a missionary nurse, and his labors are very effective. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm ahead of myself. We're not to the problems yet. He is becoming one of the best Bible workers we have, and I think he is being much benefited by the course of instruction in how to give Bible readings he is receiving from Elder Corliss. Okay, so, yeah, I jumped ahead of myself. Remember, Simmons was a nurse. Okay? So now he's working with Elder Corliss. Elder Corliss uh, was uh, an Adventist minister from the States who had gone over to Australia and had started the work over there. And Corliss had started off doing purely evangelistic work. Okay? As he would describe it, he said, the way he was taught to do evangelistic work was you put up a big tent, you hand out some, you know, put up flyers, you get people to, you, get, you preach on Daniel 2, you preach on Daniel something, what did he say next? I don't remember exactly. But you, know, you start on the prophecies, basically. Your, your whole goal, your whole methodology is to impress them with the prophecies and the, the accuracy of the Bible and hope that that convicts them that they need to listen to the rest of what the Bible has to say. And then after you've got them hooked on the, the accuracy of the Bible, then you hit the Sabbath and the state of the dead and the second coming, and you go back to the Sabbath and the state of the dead and the second coming, and then you preach a sermon on the Sabbath and the state of the dead and the second coming, <laughs> okay, and throw in the sanctuary at some point, okay? And that was, that was how... That, that was evangelism. And that's, that's what he says. That's what I was taught. And here in Australia, we're starting to experiment with a different approach. And he was... Of course, this, this happened after Ellen White got there. And Ellen White started writing to Corliss. And saying, Brother Corliss, you need to change some things. Okay? You need to try, some, try something else. We need to use the right arm. It's there still. We didn't cut it off. <laughs> you know? Let's use it. Okay. Um, <clears throat> anyhow. Okay. Uh, so Simmons, as a nurse, found himself working with Corliss. Okay. Now the cool thing is that Corliss was teaching Simmons how to give Bible readings. But we're not going to cover it here, but it's in the book. Um, Corliss, after a year or two of this, went back home and said, man, I really like that whole medical thing that this, that this nurse was bringing to our, our work. And so he went back home. He actually went up to uh, Toronto, I think it was. and Toronto, Montreal, I forget. Um, anyhow, Canada, someplace. I forget one, which one of those two cities. And he started trying to generate a medical missionary evangelism uh, of his own up there. And, and that was a great experience, which he gave us a write-up for. But let's go on. <clears throat> um, So this is now yeah, the letter from Willie White. We have been taught by the example of Christ and by the testimonies that have been repeatedly given to our brethren in the ministry and to the physicians and managers of the Battle Creek Sanitarium and the Health Retreat that the work of the gospel minister and the physician should be combined. That the minister should have a care for the physical prosperity of his flock. That the physician should be a true minister of Christ, laboring for the health of the soul as well, of, as of, as well as for the body. With this instruction in view, I have felt that our brethren made a grave mistake when they put a check upon our ministers from teaching health reform and called for specialists to do that work. It would have been better if the specialists had been employed to teach the ministers so that their work with the people would have been more effective. I don't know what he's talking about. 
I suspect it may be what he's referring to here is the formation of the uh, International Medical Missionary and Benevolent Association, which was done in 1893, the same year Kellogg gave his sermons, and they aren't in the, that the organization of that whole thing wasn't in the General Conference Bulletin either. It's supposed to be in extra number two. Remember those of you who were here that we had extra number one? I've never seen extra number two. I don't know if it was ever printed. I don't know if it's you know, lost to history. But that's where that meeting is reported, is the organization of the International Medical Missionary and Benevolent Association. And it became largely a separate entity from the General Conference. And, and I think Willie may be pointing to that, but I don't know. It's uh, just something else yet to, to study out. But I like his idea. You know, teach the ministers. You know, bring in a specialist, have him teach the ministers so the ministers can be effective. Okay, going on. I have felt that it was just as grave an error for Dr. Kellogg to make everything of the health work and belittle the evangelistic work, as he virtually does by magnifying the one so far above the other. I have felt that his criticisms were largely out of place regarding the work of Brother Simmons during the past two years. Because in treating the matter as though Simmons was not fulfilling his mission while dividing his time between evangelical and nursing work, he, Kellogg, virtually says that persons trained in the health work must make that their exclusive business. And thus he does just what the General Conference did in putting asunder that which God has joined together. Hmm. Fascinating. Well, not only that, not only was Kellogg unhappy with what Simmons was doing, but A.W. wasn't that thrilled with it either. <clears throat> Another letter from Willie. You may be familiar with the circumstances, circumstance, I wonder if I left an S off there, anyhow, which attended the coming back to Australia, brother and sister Simmons, and with the fact that they have always looked forward to the time when they should be principally engaged caring for the sick. In other words, they weren't that thrilled with their job. Okay, it's like I'm a nurse. I I I I I don't really do the door to door handing out evangelism flyer thing. You know, I'm a nurse. Did anybody notice I'm a nurse? Hello, (laughs) I'm a nurse. I don't do this. You know, why am I doing Bible studies? I'm a nurse. You know, I've got years of scientific training. Why am I wasting that? Dr. Kellogg has never been able to understand why our conferences in Australia should not employ them, the Simmonses, to work in the interests of the sick and suffering and to instruct our people in the principles of healthful living, the same as many workers trained at the sanitarium are employed by the American conferences. He has been very much dissatisfied that Brother Simmons was so largely employed in evangelistic work. We have been anxious to make a beginning in some line of work that would be largely self-supporting. Why were they anxious to start a self-supporting work in Australia? Because they were broke. (laughs) We can have a work that requires a lot of money, but it will last for 30 minutes. (laughs) That's not a good deal. We need something that isn't killing us financially. So we've been trying to do this. okay? And that would provide an opportunity for the sick among us to have rational treatment. You got sick church members. Why don't we do something medically, you know, or health-wise, or whatever? And that would also open the way for the training of Christian health workers. From our experience with the health work and health institutions in America, and from the testimony sent to the managers and physicians at the sanitariums during the last 25 years, our brethren, Australia, came to the unanimous opinion that it was right 
and essential to the highest success of the health work that our health institutions should be sustained and directed by the body acting through properly appointed committees and that all physicians and nurses should be as fully under the supervision of the general body as are the ministers and Bible workers. It is the recognition of these principles that has led to the rapid growth of our health institutions and our medical mission work in its various branches in Australia and New Zealand during the last seven years. Okay, so this may seem like a small potatoes type of issue, just you know, a little difference of emphasis. Kellogg wants his nurses just doing nurse work, and these guys want them doing something else. You know, it's not a big issue, right? Actually, it is. This is really big. As we saw in our last meeting, it's the difference between a united medical evangelistic work and what Ellen White calls the worst evil. That's a big thing. Okay? Ellen White, here's that quote. I want to tell you that when the gospel ministers and the medical missionary workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. Our medical missionaries ought to be interested in the work of our conferences, and our conference workers ought to be interested in the others. Let's go on. This is, uh, these are comments at a uh, series of meetings by a Dr. Edward Carroll. He was kind of heading up the health work in Australia. This is some interesting stuff here. In considering the work to be done in Australia, we see that before us a great destiny. While talking with Sister White recently about this matter, she made the following remark. Quotes, the medical work in Australia is destined to do more in this field than it has done even in America. Is it possible that we shall have such gigantic institutions and piles of buildings as they have? No, we've been told this is not the best way to carry it, uh, to carry it forward. The remark was also made, this is Sister White, in that conversation that the medical work here in Australia is to be an example of what the work should be. In what respect, I ask? Evidently, in the harmonious relations existing between the medical work and the other branches of the Third Angel's message. In Newcastle, we have tried the experiment of uniting our evangelistic and medical missionary work, and now, Brother Starr, what has been the result? Has it been successful or otherwise? Elder Starr says, Splendid. The people themselves are unwilling that there should be a separation of the two aspects of the work. I have never seen a community in which our peculiar views have been fully presented where there has, was less prejudice existing. This is as God would have it. Our work is not to create prejudice, but to disarm it. We want nurses who are Bible workers, and we want Bible workers and canvassers who are nurses. Don't send me a nurse. Don't send me a canvasser. Send me somebody that knows both. That's what we want here in Australia. I like that idea. Okay. Well, one of the nice things about this was that A.W. and Emma came around. <laughs> this is uh, 1909, now somewhat later, but this is A.W. Simmons writing. He says, Our first work began in the Australasian Bible School located in St. Kilda, Victoria. Here we had many varied experiences. Later we labored in tent, work, tent and Bible work in Sydney under the direction of J.O. Corliss, doing much work among the sick. We did not then understand why we could not enter upon strictly medical work. We know now. God was training us that we should not be one-sided workers, but have an all-round experience. Well, okay. One other way to measure things is the somewhat crass worldly comment, follow the money. Ever hear that? <laughs> you want to know what the commitment really is? See what's going on with the, with the money, okay? Some examples of this. Paying the bills here, okay? 
<clears throat> this is A.G. Daniels now. He's actually speaking at the 1901 General Conference session after he'd come back from Australia. He's telling a story. He says this. He says, Our medical work in Australasia stands in the same relation to the evangelical work and organizations that all the rest of the work does. We have no separate medical organization. That is a part of our evangelical work. And the leading physician or physicians are members of our union conference committee. And they hold licenses to preach the gospel. And we encourage them to be ministers of Jesus Christ as well as physicians. We foster the medical work the same as we do anything else. Well, okay. So that raised a question in someone's mind. And someone from the audience, I don't know who it was, put his hand up evidently and said, Do any of the medical workers receive any support from the tithes? Other Daniel's response, yes, when they need it. When we first started out, the first man that came to us was Brother A.W. Simmons, a nurse who graduated from the Battle Creek Sanitarium. When he came out there, I did not know what to do to get him started in the medical work. Some of our brethren had a little more light, and they said, let's make him a preacher and a medical worker combined. Let us have him work in the churches and tell the brethren of the gospel of health, and let us help support him from the tithes of the conference. So we gave Brother Simmons some money from the tithes and said, he shall have his living now, and we want him to teach the principles of health and temperance and of the gospel in all its branches, doing what he can to educate the people in all these things. And so he went right along, like all our conference laborers, making a report of his receipts. I guess that's his expense account, right? And then the conference paid him what they ought to pay him to make a fair living. Hmm. Tithe money? For a nurse? Is that kosher? What made Daniels think he could use tithe funds that way? Well, we don't know everything that Ellen White might have said to him. But here's an example from a letter that she did write to him. She said, I send you a letter written for America. Now, she was in Australia at the time. This, is, you know, this letter was written before Kellogg's comments here. I send you a letter written for America, which will show you how I regard the tithe money being used for other purposes. This is the Lord's special revenue fund for a special purpose. I have never so fully understood this matter as I now understand it. That's a fascinating thought to me is that, you know, Ellen White was human. And she, you know, she learned as she went along, you know. I have never so fully understood this matter as I now understand it. Having had questions directed here to me to answer, I have had special instruction from the Lord that the tithe is for a special purpose, consecrated to God to sustain those who minister in the sacred work as the Lord's chosen, to do His work not only in sermonizing, but in ministering. They should understand all that this comprehends. You know, if you wanted to be really, you know, kind of obnoxious and somebody wanted to raise the question of misappropriation of tithe, I think it right there it says if a guy just does nothing but preach sermons, he doesn't really deserve it. As I said, obnoxious. I'm not, I'm not going to go around preaching that in any, you know, big way, okay? <laughs> but I think that's what it says. <laughs> They should understand all that this comprehends. Do we understand what it comprehends? I don't think I do. Okay? Well, in 1901, when Kellogg made his comments at the general conference session, four days after, Ellen, after uh, Daniels spoke, Ellen White had this to say. 
in the night season, I am laboring earnestly with persons who do not seem to understand that in the providence of God, the medical missionary work is to be as the right hand of the body. Some utterly fail to realize the importance of missionaries being also medical missionaries. A gospel minister will be twice as successful in his work if he understands how to treat disease. Continually increasing light has been given me on this subject. Some who do not see the advantage of educating the youth to be physicians both of the mind and of the body say that the tithes should not be used to support medical missionaries who devote their time to treating the sick. In response to such statements as these, I am instructed to say that the mind must not become so narrowed down that it cannot take in the truth of the situation. A minister of the gospel who is also a medical missionary who through Christ can cure physical ailments as well as minister in spiritual things is a much more efficient worker than one who cannot do this. He works as a minister of the gospel. His work as a minister of the gospel is much more complete. For many years, I have been gathering rays of divine light on this subject. Let those who are being educated for the ministry receive an education in medical missionary lines. It is of great advantage to the minister of the gospel who expects to go to foreign fields that he shouldn't have a knowledge of surgery. Get that. <laughs> you want to send somebody off to Zimbabwe as a missionary? Yeah, make sure he knows how to do simple surgery at least. I think that's what she's saying. <laughs> okay. Have a knowledge in surgery that in cases of necessity, he will know how to handle medical instruments. This knowledge will open doors for the presentation of the truth to the higher classes as well as to the most lowly. I wish to tell you that soon there will be no work done in ministerial lines but medical missionary work. The work of a minister is to minister. <laughs> Our ministers are to work on the gospel plan of ministering. Where do you find the gospel plan? In the gospels. Who's it talking about? Jesus. What did he do? Spent more time healing than preaching. It's pretty stunning stuff. Had you, I love this when she says it this way, if you'd actually done, <laughs> okay, had you carried the work forward in the lines in which God intended you to, had you done medical missionary work, trying to heal soul and body, you would have seen hundreds and thousands coming into the truth. Is that clear? Maybe not clear enough. Because she had one more thing to say. You will never be ministers after the gospel order till you show a decided interest in medical missionary work. The gospel of healing and blessing and strengthening. Come up to the help of the Lord. To the help of the Lord against the mighty powers of darkness, that it be not said of you, curse ye Meroz, curse ye bitterly the inhabitants thereof, because they came not to the help of the Lord. And so that's where we'll stop. Wondering about the fate of the hundreds and thousands who would have come into the faith. And pondering what it will take for us, ministers and laymen, to become ministers after the gospel order, as we should. Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you for your blessings and for your instruction. We pray that this would be not a source of discouragement, but a source of encouragement to see how hard you've worked to help us figure out what we can do that will really be effective. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, 
seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.